You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. So this is one of my favorite types of podcasts because we get four experts in a candid conversation and we discuss all sorts of investing ideas, opportunities, concerns in the markets and anything else that they want to offer up to the group. This quarter, we have back by popular demand, Joe Carlosari, Jeff Ross. Jay Gold wasn't able to make it this quarter, so we brought in a Valkyrie founder, Stephen McClurg. This conversation was a whopper, and we cover all sorts of current events that are unfolding, uh, such as the DCG Genesis and GBTC Trust, Gemini, Binance, treasury markets around the world, the impact that they potentially have on the Bitcoin cycle, risk assets, legal battles, and much, much more. So without further delay, sit back and I hope you guys enjoy this chat. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first quarter mastermind discussion. I have Stephen McClure here. I have Jeff Ross and Joe Carlosari. Gentlemen, welcome to the Investors Podcast. Let's talk some mastermind stuff. What's going on, Preston? Not much. Hey, Preston. Nothing but these crazy markets. That's what's, that's what's up. That's an understatement. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Joe, I've been dying to talk to you specifically about the SBF stuff, just because as soon as this happened and, and he was there in the Bahamas, just kind of frolicking around as parents came down to visit, I shot you a message on Twitter and I said, like, what the heck's going on? Like, because I mean, you, you understand this stuff better than anybody as far as what's likely to happen. And you say, oh, he's definitely going to be what, what did you say? Because you're going to remember your, your reply. Yeah, no, he's, I said he will most certainly be in jail. He will most certainly face serious charges. He will be arrested. And the question of how significant a time he serves, I think, is going to depend on what evidence they, they're able to turn up. Obviously, even since I made that comment, tons of stuff have come forward, including cooperative witnesses, which does not bode well for him. So although he just recently entered a plea of not guilty, that is likely pro forma. It's likely just going to be a placeholder until he can successfully broker a deal that is suitable and acceptable to the prosecutors. Given the evidence they have and the severity of the crime and charges that he's facing, I am going to be one who is very optimistic that he serves a long sentence. I don't think they're just going to hand him you know, a, a slap on the wrist type thing. So I think he's going to, rightfully so, be facing serious, serious prison time, and eventually he will plead guilty in a plea bargain. How in the world do you post the bond amount that he posted and keep it a secret? How is that, how is that even possible? Well, you don't need to post the full amount of the bond, right? There's a bond holder that can you know, give you the, 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 the larger amount and they just require sufficient collateral. So you know, but the, the collateral was the house. Yeah, but that's not sufficient collateral, is it? I mean, they, I saw a number; it was like ten million on the house or something. Or yeah, so, so four, four million, right? So, so they're you know they're putting up that for the bondholder, and the bondholder is securing the rest of it. So they're the one really assessing the credit risk. They're assessing the flight risk, and it's their dime if he runs. And so, how about the the news that came out? I think it just came out this week where they were requesting that the names aren't released that who posted the bond. Like, is yeah, that, no, that can't I mean, be normal. So is, is that normal? I would say it's not normal. 
it, it is, but it's not unusual either, right? It's not the, the normal way of doing okay. things customary. Normally you get that information, but I think because of the folks involved and sensitivities and also, you know, the political impact of this all import of it all, I think it's very likely that, you know, that they don't want certain figures to be exposed for, you know, supporting him. So I would say, I, you know, we've seen it before. Some of our white collar folks have talked, I was talking with them and they said it's, it's not something that's unheard of, so to speak, but it's not, you're right. It's not customary. It's not normally what would you know, take place. So Caroline just sang like a songbird to, I saw she showed up in New York and was out getting coffee. There was like pictures showing up online and it seemed like she was pretty comfortable coming back to the U S under, I suspect some type of conditions that allowed her to. So I I guess where my question's going. So like, what's, what's her deal? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, so listen, there's anecdotal evidence. It appears that she's cooperating fully. I will say this. Okay. And I think folks on Twitter that I were read, was reading about, you know, they were really sort of pushing conspiracies about why hasn't he been indicted yet? Why hasn't he been arrested? Why hasn't he been extradited? They have all of him dead to rights, right? So everything we know that's public knowledge shows that he should be dead to rights, prosecuted, there's no doubt. But I will tell you though, the way the system's set up, the way you have to go through certain lengths to impanel a grand jury, to present evidence, particularly in the case of financial crimes, it takes a long time. Financial crimes prosecutions can last years, right, before charges are ever brought. Just to impanel the grand jury, they move very slowly. They are meticulous. And by the time the DOJ prosecutors actually seek that indictment, they have everything, right? They know everything. They've talked to everyone. They've got every document. They've you know left no stone unturned. In a crime of this magnitude, with billions of dollars that have been misused, misappropriated, the fact they were able to put this together in you know a handful of weeks approaching the holidays, it may not seem like it for people who are not in this world that I'm in with litigation. That's exceedingly fast. That's moving with all due haste to get it done. So they wanted to send a message and they did. You know, one point here, if I might interrupt, and this is, you brought up Caroline, you realize her dad is a behavioral economist and he actually wrote several papers on Sulema. And I actually pulled up one of the papers he, he wrote I want to say it was in the 90s. I pulled it up a couple of weeks ago for some light holiday reading. And that was her playbook. Wow. So I challenge everybody to go out and find that, find that paper that, that he published and, and read through it. And it's exactly what she did. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, it's not just Carolyn. There are other folks yeah. at FTX that have cooperated. We've seen anecdotal examples of those folks offering assistance to the prosecutors. So my guess is virtually everyone but SPF is cooperating at this point. I mean, even I mean, when the Enron guy goes in there and says, this is like nothing I'd ever seen before, you know, it is nasty. I mean, direction via signal. I mean, all I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I know everybody's pretty well versed on the story at this point, but I was just I was curious to just kind of hear your your point of view from a legal standpoint. So you think he's they're well, going to they're going to toast them. Yeah, absolutely. He will plea. Don't, this will never be a trial. I put me down as a hard, hard belief in that hard prediction that this will not see a trial. I think this will be a plea. The question is, you know, how long it's going to take to negotiate with him, given the stakes and given his, the effect on him. He's going to serve time. He's going to serve hard time. It's going to be a very difficult for him and his family to go through. I, you know, if we were counseling him, we would try to do whatever you could to gain leverage. Now, what that is, to me, that's the most interesting part. What information does he have in his position, in his posture, really the heart of quote unquote crypto, which I have a lot of problems with just generally, 
you had, you had problems even have? saying that you had problems even saying that joe <laughs> yeah i do i do but you know it's obvious right now and the things we as bitcoiners we talk about for years right it all starts to come to light in the in the end but from my standpoint here if you're him and you're trying to play your cards the best ones you have what else can you go out there what can you use with prosecutors to cooperate on i'm not going to i'm not in the business of spreading fud but there are other big players in this industry there are other people that have some mud on their faces and if there were people that I had to guess had privilege inside information that could expose some of these folks, I would put SBF at the top of that list. So we'll see. To be determined hmm. if anything comes from this. Oh, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting take. I agree with you. He, I mean, he was, he was the ringleader of all the cesspool that existed. And there's some other like strong can. I suspect there's a, there's a few other like really strong candidates that are in there. How is Mashinsky? Is, am I saying his last name correctly? Yeah, Alex Mashinsky. How yeah. is he still running around? Because he's not. <laughs> right? no, no comment. I can't, I can't talk about that one. But <laughs> anyone, Stephen or Jeff, feel free to chime in on that. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll be really brief here, but it's what's really interesting about what everything that you just said and then bringing up Mashinsky is it seems like there was one party that was at the center of everything that was going on, right? It was, it was, it was Genesis, right? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. They had, they had, they, they, they were involved with FTX, with Alameda. I just, I don't know if this is true, but I read an article that Coindesk, which is owned by DCG wrote that said that they called in two and a half billion dollars of their loans that they made to Alameda in Q2. Wow. Steven, it's interesting. You, you said one entity. I thought it, you were going to go for DCG because you can make the same thing. They, they've got tentacles into everything, right? They've got well, all I mean, the That's Yeah, I think that's all the same. Yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. DCG, Genesis. And so it's commingled. It's commingled. So it's capital. <laughs> Celsius. Was Voyager involved with those guys or not? I'm yes, sorry. absolutely. No. So the three, the three arrows going down brought down Voyager. I mean, my understanding is three arrows owes Genesis. $2 billion. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, so the biggest turd hasn't been flushed down the toilet yet is, is where we're kind of going with some of this. So the Winklevoss posted their letters today, basically pleading for their yield product. And I think it was like 300,000, 350,000 customers that evidently had yield on Gemini that school teachers, Preston, school teachers. <laughs> you, you saw how that was crafted, <laughs> right? You saw how that was crafted. Very interesting. And so it seems like Barry's tactic is, Hey, if I can just kind of hold on as long as possible, and hopefully we get a, a big reversal from central bankers and the market rebids, then maybe I can survive this. Is that really kind of the, the play? If you want to well, call that a play. Barry came out and Silbert, he came out and said that that's not true. We, we didn't default on the 1.6 billion. We haven't missed a single payment. You know, he basically rebutting most of what the Winklevi have said out there. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to take that at face value, their claims when, you know, they opened up the casino and let the school teachers gamble inside their, you know, earned products and everything else with these unregistered securities on their platform. So it seemed like crocodile tears to me, but, well, Barry, um, but who knows? I mean, but Joe, if I'm going to push back, like people yeah. can't people can't withdraw their funds. Right. So to say that they, that they haven't missed a payment, right. Like that's just total crap. Like they, well, they why can't they withdraw up. their funds? Preston? Why can't they withdraw their funds? They can't withdraw their funds because the Winklevi opened up the earned product on their platform. 
So whose fault is that? Where does the yield come from? I mean, come on, like where does the earn platform yield come from? And if you would have custodied funds and not rehypothecated and not lent them out, like, you know, folks thought you were doing, you, there shouldn't be a problem with withdrawals. The problem is you had this interconnectivity among all these entities, whereas if one domino fell, everything fell. And it was, you know, a handful of market makers. You know, my clients are increasingly frustrated about this because they're, you know, they're people that are trying to put on trades. They're trying to make markets. They're trying to get involved in this. And to deal with some of these folks in litigation and internally is just a total hassle. Dealing with Genesis is a complete hassle. I've been through the ringer with fights with them. They'll change terms on the fly. They'll make, you know, statements that they won't live up to. They'll change the deal midstream and, and, and renegotiate it. it. It's a mess. The whole industry is a mess. And you still don't have legitimate market makers coming in here because they can't figure out who's on the other end of the trade. They can't figure out what the level of leverage is in the system even. I mean, it's a mess. The whole, whole industry, and, and where is the SEC? You know, they'll, they'll go after Kim Kardashian, but they've been asleep at the switch you know, for months. <laughs> I mean, if there's one takeaway from this whole cycle, it is the abysmal failure of Chair Gensler to do anything, right? And I, I'm, I'm very critical of him at this point because this is all on him as far as I see. He was meeting with SBF regularly. He was meeting with a lot of these folks and no red flags came up. You couldn't figure out anything in your diligence with all your powers as a regulatory agency for the United States of America. I mean, come on. It is, it, it's, it's, everybody should be upset about this. Do you guys agree? Well, we, we all knew that, that Gemini was working with Genesis on the earned product, right? So that wasn't a big, that wasn't a secret at all. I mean, that was, right. that was in the documents. We all knew that they were, they were posting your funds to Genesis. Genesis was lending it. They were creating a two-sided market, which is what they said they were. And, and to look, I hear what you're saying on Gemini and the Winkle Live, but to defend them a little bit with you, you look at Genesis, they're a registered broker dealer under FINRA. They are lending money, they're borrowing money, they're making a market. And that's, I mean, this isn't anything out of the ordinary in, in, in traditional finance, right? The earned product wasn't paying crazy yields like some of these other platforms were. They were pretty, they were pretty reasonable yields for, for the market they were making. So it wasn't like they were, it wasn't like a massive casino, like, you know, like BlockFi and, and FTX and Celsius was, it was a little bit more reasonable when they were working with a thinner registered broker dealer. So, you know, yeah, they should probably should have done a little bit better due diligence on who they were, who they were lending out to. But, but at the same time, at, at the crux of it, you've got this, this registered entity that, you know, the thinner should be looking into. What are your guys' thoughts on Binance, because there's a lot of FUD being spread around on, I guess I shouldn't be calling it FUD because I have no idea what's true or not true. But when people are looking at what has happened and they're looking at the actions of CZ online, his behavior is markedly different than what it was prior to the FTX failure. So it's, it seems like there's something off I'm curious if you guys have any opinions. And if not, and if you're not comfortable saying anything, that's fine too. But we can move the, on to broader markets. But The only thing I will say is this entirely reinforces the arguments that have been made repeatedly in the orders denying the ETF, the spot ETF by the SEC, which is that these offshore exchanges, uh, particularly the leveraged derivative exchanges, the BitMEXs, the Bybits, they're black boxes. We can't see into them. We don't know what their balance sheets looks like. They're not willing to share it. Even the public stuff that gets out is questionable whether it's authentic or reliable. So they're black boxes. And to Stephen's point just a moment ago, 
Well, you know, when you're saying, well, we did our diligence, we were registered, we went and uh, we, we contracted with these folks. In many ways, it doesn't matter because of the interconnective nature of this market. It's too small and there aren't, there aren't big entities to come and backstop it that you can really ever properly assess the, rich, the risk and leverage in the system. There's no way to do it. What we found through public documents now that some of which have been leaked is that, for example, the FTX balance sheet, the Alameda balance sheet, these things were propped up with tokens that they literally created out of thin air, literally created out of thin air. So, so when you're saying, well, you know, we did our diligence as Gem- Gemini, I mean, I don't know how they could have done their diligence. Yeah. I don't know how it was possible yeah. because you can never get to where, where's the root of all this. It's just a house of cards built on a house of cards. It's complete opposite of what Bitcoin's supposed to be, by the way. Well, and look, I'll, I'll, what I, all I'll say on it is really simple, you know, and, and I'll, I'll address Binance directly too. I was having a conversation with one of my, my former, former colleagues from Tradify who's, who's still there. And we were talking about risk management. And one of the biggest parts of risk management, and this, and this is a lot of people, a lot of people in crypto don't get this part, right? A, a lot of the hedge fund managers and, and people that are managing money here, they, you know, they, were, they were a trader at Goldman or a trader at somewhere else. And they're like, oh yeah, I know how to trade. Well, that's great. But, but portfolio management's a lot more than just trading. It's, it's risk management. And, and the biggest part of risk management, believe it or not, is counterpart risk. Yes. Counterparty Amen. risk matters more than anything. It's like, you can't, even, you can't even move forward until you've assessed your counterparty risk. And so we've avoided Celsius, BlockFi, FTX, Voyager, all because when we asked for certain things like, hey, where does your yield come from? We couldn't get answers or... You know, another thing that you you do in traditional finance when you're when you're analyzing a counterparty is you ask for their balance sheet, right? You want to know their assets and liabilities. Well, there's a lot of people that won't give that to you. So that was actually a big part of FTX. We we tried to we actually tried for six months to onboard with FTX. Okay. Now, granted, there was a couple of things that they asked for us that were weird, but there were the one thing that they would never supply us was was proof of funds. And we just were like, well, we can't onboard until we get that. Well, everybody else works with us. So either do it or not. And we're like, okay, well, is there, you know, and we, we tried, we legitimately tried and couldn't get there. So, so we avoided all of that mess because of that, you know, just, just really simple process and really simple questions. And if you don't get what you need and you can't evaluate your risk, you can't take a risk. Plain and simple. Every Amen, Stephen. If you can't evaluate your risk, you can't, you can't take a risk. Same thing with Kevin. Even that, that, that's such a great point that people should play that on loop because it's so, so critical for people to understand these markets. Yeah. And, and, and this is the I'll thing. I'll apply that to Binance. So, sorry, Preston. Oh, no, I, was, I, wasn't, I was just going to say for people, just, just pause and really comprehend what, what he's saying because in the face of all of that, you and everybody else that was looking at FTX, what they're seeing is endorsements from Tom Brady umpires at World Series wearing their logos, sports stadiums named after them. And at a point, you start to think you're the crazy person because here's this rocket ship, what appears to be a rocket ship, and everybody else is getting it, but not me, because I'm I'm using these really core principles of counterparty risk. Let me see your balance sheet. The really simple stuff. And in the moment when the market is raging, everybody's, you know, clobbering it, you start to ask yourself if you're the crazy person. But once that trend reverses, these core fundamental things will keep you in the game when everybody else is 
I mean, in this case, getting locked up in prison, right? <laughs> That's right. Keep going, Stephen. Sorry to interrupt well, you. And, and I'll, say, I'll, I'll say on that, Preston, by the way, I did think I was crazy. Yeah, I believe it. I did think I was the crazy guy. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I had one of my traders literally every day complain saying, why aren't we onboarded with FTX yet? And yeah. I would say, well, they, they just haven't given us everything we asked for. Well, we're, we're missing out. We're missing, we're missing yep. this trade and only they can do it. We can only do it there. And, you know, and, and I, I kept saying, well, I can't approve this until, until we do. And, and luckily we also have a really good head of operations who I worked with for years. He was head of fund operations at Guggenheim before, you know, before as well. And he's also very firm on those types of things. And luckily he, he had my back. Right. And it was yeah. two of us, not just, not just one guy that was saying, no, I can't, can't, can't do it because of this. Right. And yeah, so, so luckily you had two people that were crazy in the room and everybody was calling us, you know, crazy boomers that move too slow, that, 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 that don't, that don't understand crypto. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and we held out. So yeah, number one, I did think I was crazy. And number two, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I did not predict that there was fraud. Yeah. I just knew that I couldn't get what I needed. That's it. I had no idea when, when the fraud happened, I was like, whoa, I had no idea that that was going to be the answer. I thought I was crazy. I thought that they were killing it. And I thought that they were going to, they were going to rule them all. Yeah. One, one ring to rule them all. Right. And I was shocked to find out that there was, there was fraud involved, but then looking back, I'm like, well, I should have known. The, right? the ultimate irony, <laughs> the, the ultimate irony for me is the organization that broke the story is Coindesk. Barry owns Coindesk, right? It blows up FTX and then like ricochets back right in his face. It's the, the irony is just totally crazy to me. Yeah. But, yeah. And then my final thing I'm going to say is, cause you asked the question about Binance, right? Yeah. 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 Sorry. You know, I, I had to say all that to lead up to this. <laughs> I don't know what's under the hood at Binance. So we don't use them. I'm yeah. not saying there's anything wrong with them. Yeah. We just don't know what's there. Same I principle. Mean, same exact principle. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, haven't really tried. Don't really care. <laughs> so just, just not use them. And I have. It's, you're not going to have a whole lot of luck issuing subpoenas to them. So. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are something else. All right. That was awesome. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Let's go ahead and talk about traditional markets. So Jeff, let's get you into the mix here. I'm going to pull up some charts here. Describe for the folks that are just listening, Jeff, we're going to go ahead and get some slides up here. Okay, I think I've got them shared. That's the 10-year treasury. I think you wanted to start off with this one here. Is that correct? Sure. Jeff? This is a cool chart. And I have to give props to Dylan LeClaire, who shared this with me. This is a, a lot of people have been talking about. It's, it's gained some popularity lately. Net liquidity, right? So, so people are talking about liquidity expansion, liquidity contraction. What does that all mean? And one way to look at it is, is factoring a, a couple things, right? So, so when the Fed is withdrawing liquidity, doing tightening, right? So they're letting bonds roll off their books. And then you take that and you subtract it from the treasury general account, how high that is. That also subtracts liquidity from the system in a way. And then third is the overnight reverse repo market. Are are institutional, like our banks, big banks, are they parking money there or are they putting that into risk assets or not? And this is a cool chart because what it's showing is if you take that net liquidity and then you sort of morph it onto the S&P 500, it gives you some bands kind of upper and lower ranges of what the S&P 500 should technically do if the markets happen to move in terms of liquidity or net liquidity. So that's what this chart is showing. And it's pretty interesting. As you guys can see, it starts, uh, we can go back further, but it's, it gets more accurate basically after COVID. So after the 2020 crash, and then, and then lots of interesting things started happening after that. Basically, what it shows is there was a surge in liquidity, right? So, so what we think of as quantitative easing in general, basically ramped and it peaked in the fourth quarter of 2021. 
And then you'll, you'll notice an abrupt peak and, and a descent from there. And it's been descending ever since then and, until we get to kind of October of 2022, where it ramped up a little bit, and which also happens to coincide when we had a nice little bear market rally. And then heading into the end of the year and into the beginning of 2023, it's kind of taken a, a dive back lower again. So that's just one thing that I like to look at personally when people talk about, you know, are we in a liquidity expansion environment? Are we in a contraction environment? If so, how will risk assets respond? Historically, I think most people have come to realize that risk assets don't do well when liquidity is being sucked out of the system. They tend to do really well. And, and, and I don't consider Bitcoin to be a risk asset, but it responds like a risk asset, especially in its early days that, what, that we're in in the price discovery phase. Uh, it tends to mop up liquidity when it's available. And what this chart shows me, at least for now, is that liquidity is still being withdrawn from the system at a rapid pace. So I would not expect risk assets to do very well unless something changes. So I'll throw that out there for you guys. Love to, go ahead. Yeah, Jeff. So just so I understand this, this is measuring liqui- liquidity being drained from the system as of the roll-off and maturity of bonds on the Fed balance sheet. Is that is that the pro- the method? That's the, the metric that's for the, liquidity. So that's the primary one minus the overnight reverse repo market minus the treasury general account. Does that's, that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. And and you you've got three three bands here. You've got the upper band, which I don't think the S and P got above five thousand, right? And ever, but uh, but apparently that would have been one of the fair mark fair values based on liquidity that, in the system at that time. Exactly. So the so the upper green band is kind of the upper fair value that it could reach based on liquidity. The 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 red band is the lower boundary. And then the black line is at the actual price of the S P five hundred. Lynn Alden talks about this in her, her newsletters. She has a similar chart where she actually does it on the actual sites, the Fed site, the Fred site. Darius Dell speaks of it as well. I don't know. Anybody else have any thoughts on this? I, this to me is, is I think, super, super interesting. And it, and it kind of goes along with the saying, especially I think, Preston, the last time we were on, you were showing those charts going way back and showing the expansion of liquidity and the, with, you know, the contraction of liquidity. And then you, you put that up with the stock market and then you also put it up with Bitcoin and it almost perfectly coincides. So, you know, correlation is not causation, but man, it sure makes a compelling case for it. I personally like it for if you're a short term person, it kind of shows you the vol ranges. So, like if it starts getting up into the upper band, you could probably expect maybe a, a pullback or that the vol the volatility is kind of reaching its its local max or min. It seems to kind of follow that, but I'd I'd have to dig into the calculation more to really have much confidence in in that idea. But it seems like it could be useful for something like that. I mean, look, you know, S and P's at you know, thirty-eight fifty-eight. I, I I absolutely love looking at liquidity in markets when I'm looking at what what risk assets risk assets will likely do. I mean, it looks like looks like this is kind of pricing the S and P at possibly going at thirty-five hundred. I'm a little bit more bearish on this, and 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 I I kind of get there a different way, but it's the same concept. I, I look at the bond market because it's the only thing I know how to do to 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 get to see what S and P prices are, and the way that I the way that I Kind of get there. I look at where rates are going, and specifically look at the high yield bond market. Right. So if if we think if if we believe Kashkari and and believe that the Fed will raise rates at least another hundred basis points this year, which I think is entirely possible, if not too light, then you're you're probably looking at high yield bond rates for you know 
on, on the five year, somewhere around, you know, call it 9%, which means that, you know, probably double digit default rates because companies can't afford their debt service at that level. And they won't be able to really refinance and afford that debt service. The way that high yield bonds work or, or issuers work is that they, they, they typically issue five-year five year debt. And then after four years, they're already starting to, uh, to refinance it because they're not like the, the bigger corporations that can just pay it off if it, mm. if, it, if it matures. They have to act early and they're, and they're usually acting in a one-year one year out. So, so when they so, try to roll it, so when they try to roll it, that's when you really start to see it. And that is, is that the point you're getting at with that, Steve? Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly right. And for yeah. all these companies that are that are having to essentially roll and issue new debt this year, yeah, they're, they're not going to be able to afford the the debt service. So based on where we're looking at potential high yield bond defaults, I, I see the S and P going as low as thirty one hundred. Wow. Because the S&P is correlated to the high yield bond market. And so when we look at the chart, so I, I have the government bond yield curve pulled up and I would imagine that the yield, the yield that you're seeing in the high yield sector that you're talking about would kind of have a parallel movement to what we're seeing. And so I have it highlighted here. I don't know if you guys can see where I have the line drawn. It's showing like January of 2022 is where we watched the yield curve really kind of break what was a traditional kind of trend and it started selling off like crazy and it's just been in a rip ever since. And so we're coming up or we're basically at the one year anniversary of this move, this aggressive move. And you're saying that as they try to roll that that debt, we're now at the one year mark and you kind of expect that to really start to play out here in the coming quarter, two quarters. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, prob- probably probably closer to Q2 and Q3. And, and here's the problem with the current yield curve, right? So, so right now, you know, just, you know, five-year treasuries are at 387. Oops. Okay. Sorry, guys. So usually in, in, in typical markets, if a, if a company can't afford the, the, the debt service on five-year debt, they just go down the curve and they issue, you know, two or three-year debt or, or floating rate bank mm. loans. Mm. The problem is, is the two years at 430. It's higher. It's higher. Yeah. Look here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or if you're like, okay, well, maybe I'll just issue six months, six month paper, commercial paper, 475. Wow. Right? So, so you, so you're forced into the five year, but a lot of issuers don't want to give five year paper to companies that are potentially failing either. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of problems in the high yield market. Now explain to people why they just couldn't roll into a into a ten year or something with a longer duration. No, no issuer or no or no bond buyer wants to give a high yield bond company, which you know don't even know if the business is going to be viable for ten years to yeah. pay off the debt. Yeah, based on their burn rate of of you know or total lack of earnings and whatever they have on their balance sheet they're expected to go negative on their balance sheet in 6 months or a year or whatever yeah, yeah. gotcha yeah i mean typical investment grade bond issuers you know like some of the big banks you know of or manufacturing companies apple i mean they can issue 10 year 30 year even 30 year debt all day long yeah but i mean if you're like toys or us i mean who's going to give you 10 year debt yeah steven why do you think some of the high yield proxies like you know things like hyg are in the same basic band they've been in since june you know we really haven't seen them sell off hard i mean hyg let's see 
I'll try well, to pull 70, over here. 74, 60. It's the same was back in June. Some of these bond ETFs. Yeah. It, it usually has, it, it, it all has to do with duration, right? And risk on bonds are, are basically what, what, what that means is if rates start going up, if you're in higher duration bonds, longer duration bonds, then, then your price changes more dramatically. Right. right. So, so things like us treasuries or investment grade bonds is not what you want to be in. You want to be in lower duration bonds because the price movements are less drastic. So, so people are scrambling to hold lower duration bonds. And, and the way that you get lower duration is you either have a shorter maturity or a higher yield, mm-hmm. which essentially is high yield bond is, is high yield debt. Right. So, so, so people are moving into that for price protection. But once that price protection is taken out and that duration risk lowers, then that's when people are going to start moving back into longer duration, higher grade products. I'm going to send a quickly pull up. And this is, you know, we were looking at yields earlier. I'm showing prices here. And this is an ETF. This is the iShares High Yield Corporate Bond ETF, which is a ticker HYG. I'm just going to pull this up so people can see the, the chart. I think this is it. There we go. And you can kind of see where high yield bonds are at from a price standpoint. Right. Yeah, uh, that's right. And, and, and for those just listening in on the podcast, it, it's in the same range it was basically in June, like where most of the damage is done in the first part of the year in terms of the sell-off. I, I've got a question for you, Stephen. So, you know, I, I made a chart with Lynn where we were tracking the global M2. Because everybody pulls up the USM2, but when you combine it and you're looking at it from a global perspective, it's really interesting how it's slightly different. And we've seen, and I let me pull up the chart here so that I can kind of show people what I'm talking about. But when we're looking at the global M2, you've seen this enormous bounce since, what is it? No, the, the start of November of this past year. Here, let me click on the right thing. Share. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So here's the chart. And you can see how much M2, global M2, was added into the global economy post COVID. I mean, it just ripped. They then decide that they're going to get serious. They're tightening. The US is tightening M2. Europe's sitting on their hands doing nothing. Japan's, and we can talk about that. <laughs> But then out of nowhere, it seemed like out of nowhere in early November, the global M2 just went on another rip again. And I, you know, I've been told this is due to the dollar devaluing during the same period of time. So if we go back, sorry, I got the high yield one pulled up here. Let's go DXY. When we look at the, the, the DXY, you can see here in October... And there you go. The start of November, the DXY starts selling off aggressively. How did they? Do, how did the U.S. do this? How did they weaken the dollar so much? Because whenever I'm looking around and I'm looking at the disaster that's happening in Europe, I'm looking at the disaster that's happening in Japan, and how much debasement they're having to do in order to offset the energy issues that they both locally have. I just, I just don't understand how the dollar could be selling off in, that, in the face of that environment. You would think that the dollar would be getting bid in the face of those other fiat currencies. So how did they do this? Yeah. Well, what a lot of other central banks 
around around the world do is they they're constantly trying to peg themselves to the dollar or, or or if not pegging themselves to the dollar manipulate their currency versus the dollar and the reason why you do that people are like well why wouldn't you why wouldn't you do the opposite right and and really what it comes down to if the dollar is too strong right then here in the us we can't export yeah right if the dollar is weak then we can export a lot you know and our manufacturing thrives mm-hmm. so so essentially what happened was the fed took action and started aggressively raising rates which essentially took liquidity out of the system began to devalue the dollar but then all the other countries around the world had to very quickly catch up so that their global manufacturing and global exports don't get weakened so so they had to start taking action to go in the opposite direction that they were going in and then so it's always a laggard effect that's why you see these bounces and and, and strength and weaknesses because in in some cases they're trying to tr- they're trying to gain what the US is going to do in other cases they're just trying to catch up so so that's why you see that 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 type of volatility do you think and and this is just purely gut i have no idea i just kind of feel like the dollar's sell off that we've seen since call it november is coming to a close and we're about to see another rip on the dollar do you agree with that or what's your, what's your point of view on where it goes from now? I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and here's why. We just passed a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending package. So everything that the Fed is doing to fight inflation, the US government through policy is doing everything they can to create inflation. Mm. Right? So I don't know who's going to win. Mm. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. 
Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta love it. I want to go quickly around the world on some other yield curves. So we had the we had the US yield curve pulled up. Let me go back to this chart. Here we go. Okay, so here was the US yield curve we had talked earlier about kind of where it kind of broke a, a year ago when we were talking about the high yield. Here's the UK's yield curve. You can see unlike our US yield curve where it's highly inverted where your lowest duration is is kind of producing the highest yields. Over in the UK, you still got the one year at the at the bottom of the yield curve producing a 3.17% return and the 20 year and the 25 year up there close to 4%. This thing's moving out, like aggressively moving out. As you guys look at that, do you think this is a reversal? Cuz it doesn't look like a reversal to me. It just looks like st- like crazy crazy volatility and it's still Nothing is demonstrating that this thing has reversed and is starting to bid. Any thoughts? Nothing? Joe, I'm dying to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, they've got some unique issues, I think, with how their their bond market is constructed, particularly how they borrow at the long end. So I, I, I would view this as an anomaly, but that's just my takeaway. I think the consistent message from the global bond markets is that the long ends consistently are rejecting the notion that the rates are going to be able to stay high for this for much longer. I think that's the message of the tenure that I, I sent over the, the chart press and that you know we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. That I think this is an anomaly and from a global well, perspective, at least. Yeah. And I know Jeff asked you that. The audience might not know this, but Jeff asked you that because Joe, and don't, take, don't let me take words out of your mouth, but Joe, you're looking at the US yield curve and you think that we are seeing a a sell the the peak sell off is over and that we're maybe starting to see a bid in US treasuries is that your point of view from going into 23 
Yeah, long end. I mean, you had the window dressing at the the end of the year, which you typically see because they have to clean up some books. And so you saw a little bit of a sell-off, particularly at the long end. So you got this bounce. But bam, look at this week. I mean, look at the, the week we've had with it, it catch a real bid and yields fall You know, 10 year plus across the board. So to me, that is where you want to be in the face of recession. Obviously, I was early to this trade, but I still think it's the right one moving into next year with the deteriorating economy and very much likely a recession baked in. The problem we have is that we can still consistently still have this thing that, you know, good news for, for risk assets is bad news, right? And what I mean by that is that the economy has not deteriorated as rapidly as many thought. You know, many astute market analysts, macro analysts thought the Fed could hike, you know, a couple times, three times. They, they've been on the fastest hiking cycle in, in modern history. And you haven't seen, quote unquote, something break. In fact, we've got some spending data, which even adjusted for inflation seems to be flat for the year. You get the MasterCard data. That's another chart I gave to you. You know, you've got restaurant spending year over year up by 15%. That doesn't scream economic collapse and things are falling apart. Now, obviously, the, the risk assets have been ravaged, right? But even as late as I think November, you had, you know, the Dow five or 6% off the all time high. I mean, the markets have responded extraordinarily well to the fastest hiking cycle in history. And there's a couple of reasons for that we can get into structurally, but nothing in any chart is telling you impending doom in the next month or two. You know, now next year, I think it's going to be awful, right? I think you're going to keep, but the problem is I think a lot of investors, they are conditioned to fight the last war, right? They're conditioned to fight, you know, 2008 or the COVID bus where things just all fall apart very rapidly within a short span. And if you go back historically, that's not typically how recessions play out. Recessions are long, difficult periods, right? In the 2000 recession, March of 2000 is the peak. We do not find the bottom until I believe April or March of 2003, right? Somebody might remember this better than I do, but it's, it's, it's a three-year process. And there's some evidence here that this, this thing can take a long time to play out. And that's not what investors want to hear probably, but it, it, it is the reality. We've seen it through all of 2022 when people were thinking that the, the wheels were going to come off the cart really quickly. I don't know. I, I, I do feel like there are a lot of people that are, that are really suffering. I mean, for the last two years, there was a group, big group of people that, that didn't have to work. They were just trading monkey JPEGs. Now they're moving into their mom's basements and they're having to get jobs flipping burgers at McDonald's. So that's, that's painful. That's hard. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the, in, the, in the coming year. Definitely agree with you that next year, the economic prospects are not rosy by any stretch. I mean, I think you have to at least bake in a mild recession. But you know, the JP Morgan data that we have from checking account balances on a real adjusted basis, adjusted for inflation, still shows elevated balances from where you were pre-pandemic. So, you know, I, I think, yes, I think you're exactly right. People were paid, you know, so many paper millionaires in, in 2020 and 2021. Maybe the reality is setting in now. Maybe they're finally pulling back and saying, we got to tighten our belt. But that's different than imminent economic collapse or breakdown of the system, right? That's, we're on a path towards recession. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Isn't it interesting, though, because I'm sure you guys follow this too, the PMI data looking at manufacturing. I mean, manufacturing is already in a contraction. It's already 100% in, in a recession, right? But services is still really strong. You know, the JOLTS data basically just says that we never recovered the workers from COVID and that disaster. We still have the supply side issues that caused 
inflationary pressures, right? I mean, just the... Why is that, Jeff? Sorry, let's talk about the jolts data because that's really key. Why do you think that even with the, 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 the fastest hiking cycle, the stimmy checks running out, why haven't those people returned to the workforce? To, to, to Stephen's point about, you know, the, why aren't they back at McDonald's flipping burgers? Well, there's multiple reasons, right? I mean, so, so there's big reasons like demographics, right? But that's, that's too long-term. Demographics are bad. So there's just fewer and fewer people. I think, I think the work, the labor force participation rate, I think peaked in 2000 and it's been on the decline ever since. COVID changed everything, right? COVID shut businesses down. It scared the crap out of people for right or for wrong. Some people just refuse to come back. Some people can't come back because of medical conditions, maybe long COVID or whatever. I won't get into that. So there are people who just aren't coming back to the workforce. And I've heard, I've, and I think Powell for the first time actually brought that up, at least the first time to my knowledge at the last meeting, talking about we have a loss of maybe a couple million, three million people. I've seen some estimates as high as five or six million people that just aren't coming back to the workforce that were there pre-COVID and they're not here now. And so that's all very interesting. And I think that's why the data looks so weird and so skewed. And then also, and then I'd love to hear your guys' take on this too, but also it seems like the services sector is still trying to recover from COVID. So they're desperate for workers. They're dying for workers, but they're just not finding them. And then, and then on the other hand, manufacturing is just falling apart. Orders are, new orders are, are you know, just non-existent. Supply, they're, they're, uh, their supplies, basically their inventory, excuse me, is just super high. People aren't buying their stuff. They, they don't know what to do. So manufacturing is already in a recession. How does this affect the overall economy? That's the tricky part. This is why it's so, it's so difficult to see what's going to happen. That's why I'm personally confused trying to figure out, are we, gonna, are, we gonna, are we standing on the precipice right now and we're going to crash and fall off within the next couple of months? I can see a scenario that says that with the inverted yield curve with the way the data is going, with the slowing economic cycle, right? With this disinflationary period and a hawkish Fed, all of those things just pretend to just terrible times ahead for risk assets in the near future. But then I can see to your point earlier, Joe, and Stephen, you're kind of alluding to this too. These things take time to work out. So is this going to last for a year, two, two more years, three or four? You know, Michael Burry, I think, thinks it's going to last many years from now. Four, four years, he said. Yeah. Sure. Right. So it's somewhere, it's somewhere between four months and four years, this recession is going to go on <laughs> when we bought them. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm still waiting to see. Just real quick, Jeff, the thing you said that was really fascinating is I remember Powell making that comment about people that have left the workforce. But at the same time, he's persistent in all the FOMC press conferences that there's imbalance in the labor market and that right. they're, they're actively trying to trigger people to be unemployed. They're actively, right. want, they want people out of a job at the same time saying a bunch of people left the workforce. It, it's so bizarre. It's bizarro yeah. land. Yes. Well, but there's a complete behavioral shift that happened that, 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 that happened and is happening over the last three years. And, and, it, and it was during COVID. We went from a, we, we, we kind of went from the United States to something along the lines of France, right? And from a, from a behavioral standpoint, people just don't want to do menial jobs. They'd yeah. rather just not work. I mean, people got paid to not work for so long that they, they, they either don't want to do something they just don't want to do, but they also have an expectation that you know now that after that whole event occurred, that if they run out of money, the government will just take care of them. And, and that is a social shift in our thinking as a society. And it's going to take us a very long time to get out of that if we ever do. 
right? So, so that's just a shift in, in, in people's behavior towards, towards work. And I don't know if any of you hire people, but you know, when you're, when, even when you're hiring now and it's the whole hiring millennials kind of thing, it's not that at all, but it's, it's a very different attitude where people just don't want to work more than 30 hours a week. And or that, coming to the office. Yeah. Or, they want to work yeah. in their house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's just, a, that's just a shift that's happened, you know, and we, you, you've had a lot of companies that have laid off tons of people. We've laid off a ton of people and we're not really seeing those people going back to work. They're just like, yeah, I don't want to work. Some of them are moving in with their parents. Some of them are doing other things. They just, they're, they're doing other things other than working and they're, they're okay with that. And I think Powell's going to have a very hard time trying to force unemployment because we are below fully employed, right? I mean, if you look at a, if you, if you look at a typical society, you know, full employment is 5% unemployment, right? Because that 5% of people you don't want to hire anyway, and, or, or, or just unhirable. So you have that. And I, and I, and I bring this back up again, but at the same time, our government is also passing massive spending measures that are hiring more government employees. So as much as we're getting people to be laid off in the public sectors, or the, or say, sorry, sorry, the private sector, private. the government is hiring more people. And those are, you know, and sometimes those are easy jobs, right? Mm. I mean, not always, but you know, some of, some of them are easy and that'll probably be where a lot of people shift. We'll just, we'll just have more government employees. And when you look at the value creation that's, that's being rendered by these abundant government jobs, like, <laughs> <laughs> What are you saying about I the about quitting my job and joining the IRS, man? You get to, you get to carry some, a sidearm and some of those memes that came out of that IRS employment stuff was outrageous. Hey, I'm pulling up a chart here that shows the 30 year minus the three month. And what I find so interesting about this, you guys were talking about how long this could potentially play out. And when we look at previous cycles, on this chart, you see the 30 year bond minus the the 30 or I'm sorry the 3 month note and underneath of it you can see the S&P 500 and you can see the peak of the S&P 500 and when we look at the peak of the S&P 500 on previous cycles and we take a measurement on when the 30 year minus the 3 month is at its highest level it was what was this 863 days after we saw a negative print on the 30-year minus the three-month. So let me take one more measurement. This was the 2007 time period. So here we are on the lowest. It's not perfectly synced to the top of the S&P 500, but it's very close. And when we go to the bottom of the S&P 500, we got 717 days. We on this current cycle right now, have not even cl- have a clear bottom on the 30 year minus the three months. So let's just say I take 750 days or 800 days and let me extend that out to the, out to the right. And this is giving us basically February of 25. So Stephen, do you, do you think that that's a, a pretty good estimate of like how long risk could be punished? going forward? Or are we in a new paradigm where the response that central bankers are going to have to supply once things would potentially get nasty is going to be so unprecedented 
compared to anything that we've seen historically, that we get another COVID level, 100% face ripping equity market in the span of months. Look, if you, if you look at the last year, you know, the, the S&P is down, you know, just under 20%, right? I think it's 18 and a half, 19%. Yep. Um, 19.7. Yeah. And we'll, so we'll, we'll go down another 20% from here, right? Based, based, based on what I'm looking at in the, in the, in the bond markets based on rates. So even if we go up another, call it 100, 125 basis points this year, I, I do believe that there's going to be a point that probably won't be until 2024 Q1 or even later that the Fed is going to have to start dropping rates again. Not because, and, and, and so we're not going to get lower inflation anytime soon. So the Fed is going to have to deal with that. We're not going to get higher unemployment anytime soon. So the Fed's going to have to deal with that. And these are all policy decisions, you know, again, that the Fed has to deal with. The thing that's going to push the Fed is going to be a failed treasury auction, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So what that means is people are just going to capitulate and say, well, I still own treasuries here because, you know, why would you, why would you continue to buy treasuries at the, so, so the Fed is selling treasuries at the same time as raising rates. Governments around the world are going to kind of give up on buying treasuries and money managers are just going to say, well, I'd rather own something else that gives me a better return, especially if my expectation is inflation is going to be higher. So a failed treasury auction is going to be, all right, well, we're, we're going to have to step in and do something. We're going to, and, and likely what that action is going to have to be is the Fed is going to have to capitulate themselves and say, well, it's time to start buying treasuries on the balance sheet again, which of course creates more liquidity in the system, creates more inflation. Joe, so, I don't, I, I want to hear, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Go finish, Steve. <laughs> I apologize. So, Joe's so very excited to respond. <laughs> we're in a death spiral. We're in a debt death spiral right now. Yeah. And it's going to take a lot to get out of it. So 2025 isn't unheard of. Well, okay. So let's go back a second. Inflation isn't, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I thought you said something like inflation isn't going anywhere down. I don't see a metric on anything I look at that isn't showing inflation going nowhere but lower. You have gas prices today in the United States on an average basis lower than they were a year ago. Okay. Every forward looking future contract tells you inflation across the board from purchasers, from manufacturers, from even services inflation is heading lower. If the real estate market continues on the path that I think we're all headed to, owner's equivalent rent is going to sink like a stone. So in terms of inflation, I don't see inflation being the story at all of 2023. I think if anything, it's disinflation and potentially deflation, especially if we get these hard downs in financial markets and, and in, in the real estate market. You're, no one's going to be talking about inflation. They're going to be talking. So let, let's put that but there. You're saying you think we're going to get a negative inflation print? No, 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 no. That's I'm just saying- it, no, d- disinflation is that the, the rate of change is slowing. That's that's general disinflation. That you're, it's not growing as fast as it was previously. So if you have, if you look at any forward metrics from commodities, from services across the board, I mean, just like look at energy, right? The backbone, the lifeblood. I think we all agree on that. And how energy is is critical, right? Gas prices lower today than they were last year. At the same time, Joe, it, how do you? So, 
how do you, I'm sorry to interrupt you. How do you look at the rest of the world and the impact mm-hmm. that that might flow? Cause that's the thing that I'm struggling with. I think in the U S I hear everything you're saying and pretty much agree with you. But whenever I look at Europe and I look at the UK and I look at Japan, they're not having that scenario. They're actually, it's, it's, a, it's still going up. They're double digit inflation. And so my concern is, is how does that potentially come and, and spew and trickle itself into the US economy where, I mean, there's no central bank, in my opinion, that's able to really kind of do something all out on their own. It's so coordinated yeah. at this point. So how do you so handle I think that? The way I view it is that the US has been more aggressive than nearly every other central bank. People make arguments about Australia because they move faster, but virtually US has been the fastest. Okay. They have, they've hiked the fastest and you're seeing the effects in real time. You're seeing demand beginning to crush and manufacturers, the savvy home builders, look at the price of lumber. They are recognizing this and they've sniffed out that we are headed for really rocky economic waters. There isn't a CEO you can talk to professionally, personally, that won't tell you they're in batten down the hatches mode for a recession. Okay. And they see it in the consumer data. So tell me how you get inflation when across the board, every single person saying we're cutting and reducing spending. I don't understand. That well, doesn't I don't make any sense that, to me. I don't think and, that's and what just he was, but that's not what Steve, Stephen was saying that you're going to have a treasury market that seizes up. He's not necessarily yeah, saying Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So, so when, you, when you talk about inflation, okay. Inflation, you know, obviously it, it took longer than most people think, but it, it has peaked, right? The rate of change is 0.1% month over month. You're getting cooler prints. And with consistent demand destruction, it's going to come down. Now, what, what I do agree with Stephen on, I think what I, I think the, the key thing is that you could have long run inflation remain elevated for the remainder of the decade, right? But that could mean, you know, instead of structural inflation at 2%, you're at 3% for the remainder of the decade. I think that that's very likely, right? And that changes the way investors have to position. It changes what central banks and policymakers can do. But to answer your question about globally, if the U.S. has moved the fastest and has hiked the fastest and crushed demand the quickest of everyone else, and the U.S. enters a hard downturn, you're going to see, I mean, the U.S. is still the 800-pound gorilla economically, globally, right? And if the U.S. is in a hard recession, other countries are going to follow suit. In other words, you're not going to see a situation where the U.S. goes into a hard recession, but the remainder of the world somehow averts that recession or avoids that recession. It will pull down prices across the board globally. But there is definitely concern to your point, Stephen, I think about liquidity issues in the treasury market. That's one of the reasons why the SEC and some of these entities are trying to do this reform for clearing. The key thing though, again, uh, to bail out the treasury market is how do investors position? Because you have to put those trillions of dollars somewhere in the face of a very difficult economic downturn. You're pulling them from risk assets and you will pull them to bail out the treasury market. That's where there's a mandate to effectively bid these things up. And I, I'd love to hear your comment as a, as a former bond trader on that, because I mean, isn't that the normal play in a recession and a hard economic downturn? You're going to go into the treasury market because if at all, if there's one thing we can be certain of, it's that the United States government hopefully won't fail. Well, right now there's a, a big move to make up for the fact that we've got a lot of unfunded pensions and we're not hitting our actuarial rates in, for, for insurance accounts. And we've missed that as a, as a market for so long that right now you're playing catch up. The rate that you need in insurance, for instance, is about five to 6% in pensions. It's anywhere from seven to 9%. And even where bonds are today, you're still not getting that without taking extraordinary risk. 
Right. And the way that pensions have gotten there before is they've, they've offset their bond portfolio by investing in private equity. Well, private equity and public equities are expected to go down. So you can't really invest there, but you're not going to move into the bond market because the yields aren't high enough. So you have to go into, you have to go into corporates and the corporate, the only corporates that make sense right now are really your, your, your triple B's, right? Because the spreads are still very over, over treasuries in single A through triple A corporates. Mortgage rate, you know, mortgage-backed securities don't make a lot of sense right now too, just because of what you just said with the housing prices going down. So you don't want to be in that product. So, so triple Bs and then, and then you know, barbelling your strategy with high yield and, and investment brigade corporates is, is the way that you sort of average it out. But, but treasuries just don't get you there. So you're going to have to have the Fed step in and take that nut. Now, as far as, in, now as, far as inflation go, you know, taking a point of time and trying to make a trend out of the point in time doesn't always work. I don't think that we have a trend going down. I see us having a reversion to the mean. So, you know, I don't think we're going to get down to two, 3% because mm. a lot of the inflation numbers that we saw a year ago where we spiked were one time, even though we were trending higher overall. And then a lot of the numbers that you're seeing for, for commodities and other prices today are a point of time that are probably closer to a bottom because we had a you know, one-time release of strategic oil reserves, but energy will, and, and we've had a, a warmer winter than a lot of people expected. So that's just a point of time data, reversion to the mean, but I still believe that energy prices are going to continue to go up despite the fact that a lot of companies are laying off, you're mostly seeing that in the tech sectors and the banking sectors, people that don't really produce anything. Trust me, I know I've been, I've been in the finance sector. We, don't, we produce a bunch of spreadsheets. We're, we're, we're losers, man. But people that are in, in, in the service and the manufacturing industry, it's still very hard to find that labor. And the labor price isn't going down. So anytime you have wage inflation, so wage inflation was one of the primary movers of, inf- of, of inflation over the last three years. And we continue to see wage inflation for important jobs for, for things like service and manufacturing. So those, so, so those are the factors that are really pushing inflation to continue to trend higher, even, the, even though we've had a reversion to the mean that we're seeing over these two points of time. So Stephen, would, would this be properly, I'm curious if you agree with this opinion, is this are people forgetting about how broke the supply side is and are just focusing on the demand side like we've seen historically over the last 40 years, where everybody's looking at the demand metric, right? The, oh, everybody's losing their jobs. They're not, they're not spending as much. And so that's what's going to cause inflation to start going down without yeah. even talking about how ports are jacked, how shipping, you know, transportation is jacked and these things that you just can't get it as fast. You can't get the quality that you got before. And that's the thing that, and and you just don't have the people, you don't have the demographics to, to work and therefore it's going to cost more in order to offset those things from the supply side. Well, I I think, I think it's still both, right? I mean, we talked about earlier how, despite the fact that people are losing, losing their jobs and moving in with their parents, and we still, you know, bank statements 
still show that there's plenty of cash to go around. So there's still a lot of demand. Mm-hmm. It's not as high as it was a year ago, but there's still a lot of demand. And then on the supply side, that's really driven by the labor market mm-hmm. and skilled labor in, in, in areas like manufacturing is still hard to find. I mean, who's going to hire, you know, the community organizer from Twitter to go work in their, you know, in your manufacturing plant. For 15 uh, mil, or, for 15 and, mil. And they're certainly not going to go work at Waffle House, right? So, 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 so you still have, you still have those both, both supply and demand side issues that, that I believe is going to, is, is still, is still trending us for high inflation. Now, I, I don't think that we're going to hit, you know, you know, in CPI of 8.9% again, but we might be at a steady, you know, six to 7%, which is, which is still bad. And by the way, I'm, I'm unpopular in this, in this, in this opinion, you know, there are a lot of other economists, more economists than not believe that we're going into a, 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 a deflationary environment. I, I'm, I'm just not there. You know, I, I focus on, I focus more on, on, on looking at labor trends and other issues when I'm, when I'm really thinking about this. And I, I know, I, I know I'm kind of the, ano- the anomaly here. So just you, you think you think CPI is going to be like this time next year will be year over year annualized above say six percent. Let's call it five to seven. But yeah, five to seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Stephen, can I pick your brain for a little bit? Why why do you think the the high yield spreads haven't really blown out much yet? Are you surprised at how calm the spread is so far, or do you, do you think this is just because it's going to be such a slow process? that they will blow out, but it's going to take maybe a year or two, two years to, to happen. What's yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be a while before. I don't think it's going to happen until we start seeing defaults pick up, but, but spread really has more to do with demand as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, even though what the spread should be is probably, you know, 200 basis points over what they are. There's just, there's just still so much demand for yield. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that's hard to say because, Yield has gone up, but it's only caught up really in the short end, mm-hmm. right? So it's really been unmoved relatively in in the, in the long end of the curve, and that's where big money buys. You know, we're talking about you know insurance and pensions. So so yeah, there's there's still a lot of lot of demand on the short end of the curve, a lot of demand for yield, and we're just we're just making up for the fact that. Well, let's take, let's take a life insurance company or, or let's just take any, any insurance company right now, for instance. Okay. There's a lot more claims that have come in in the last three years, right? Whether it's health claims or accident claims or more claims are coming in, which means that the premium you have to charge for insurance is higher or the return you have to get in your bond portfolio has to be higher. Okay. Right. So premiums have gone up. But that only works in the short run. People just stop buying certain types of insurance or, or they start you know, reducing their policies. And then what happens on the, on the management side of things is you've got to, re, you've got to produce that higher return. So, so return demand has gone up and that's just that's compressed spreads, even though, even though yields have gone up. Joe, just another wrinkle in the argument about inflation coming down. How much mm-hmm. do you buy into this China coming back online narrative that you keep seeing in the, in the news? <laughs> Not at all. I, I think that it was China in many respects was never offline. They've got political instability. 
that has forced their hand. And I'll, 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 so I don't get in trouble for it. I'll quote Mike Green, who talked about this extensively in a recent podcast he did. You have people literally in China that are locked into factories, forced to do work to support the government. Okay. By any stretch of the imagination, if you just look at what that, what the reality is in the ground, it's let's modern day slavery, right? Yeah. That's what's going on in China. Yeah. And, and we should call it what it is. And in some ways we continue to be complicit in supporting this by buying all the cheap crap from China. And I, I do not believe that the, 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 this was at all COVID related. I think the zero COVID policy was a fiction created to disguise the political instability and threats to the government over there. So put that for what it's worth. That's my, my overarching view in China. I can tell you as an investor, as an investor who likes to support value-based principles and, and companies where you know I, I have confidence in the governments in which they operate, I don't put any money in China. I try to keep as little exposure to China as possible. And I think it's good that you got some of these companies moving out and trying to disassociate themselves from China. I think that's so a really you, positive. So development. you pay attention to counterparties. Of course. That's the same thing we were talking about <laughs> earlier, right? I mean, it's China, China you know, that's, that's all I'm going to say on that. Stephen, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I, I tend to agree with Joe on this one. I, I agree with Joe as well. I mean, I, I actually spent a small portion of my career working in China. And I mean, this was 2005, I think. And I, I predicted that this would happen way faster than it actually did. Just, just watching these cities being built in the oh, middle yeah. of nowhere yeah. with, with nobody living in apartments. They're just, they're just building empty apartments, empty buildings. And, and the really interesting thing is, is, you know, the economy kind of opened up and you would have these people from the, from the Communist Party that were given land grants and they became developers overnight and they made a lot of money. Mm. And what they would do is they would borrow money from, 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 a, from a bank, build their project, somebody else would do the same. This guy would sell his building to this guy and then he would sell his building for this guy and they would create a bunch of paper wealth. Kind of reminds me of, of, of FTX or Genesis. But, uh, but it was the same kind of thing. And, and I thought that the whole thing would fall apart way sooner than it did. But with all of these things that are being built, and, and it wasn't just you know cities and office buildings, and it was also manufacturing plants. And there was a, a big demand and drive to produce things, to sell to the rest of the world so that they could collect all the money, right? Well, there weren't enough people to do it. So they forced people out of, out, out of the countryside and out of their farms to come and work in these manufacturing plants. People just don't want to do it. You know, they were happy farming on their farms and being self-sustained, but the government didn't like that. So they forced people into the cities to, to fill them. And, and I saw the forced labor even then. And the fact that it's just now coming out and, and causing problems. I mean, the, the problems that it's causing is they still can't produce the things that they, that they want to produce and ship around the world. There's just not enough labor to, to catch up with the demand, which is why they changed their, their one child policy. Mm. Yes. Well, so yeah. the stuff that Ray Dalio puts out about China, it almost seems like he's compromised or has a severe conflict of interest. At least that's my opinion, right? I'm looking and seeing a lot of these things that you're talking about. And the things that I hear and the things that you see on Twitter that, that are being posted, you know, are leaking out of there that are closely contained from their general population from seeing. And 
you know, then I read these books that that Ray pumps out and just I mean, he's just talking about how everything's moving to China and how that's the beacon of like Hell, you even have people like Charlie Munger talking about it. I mean, he's, I was just going to say Charlie getting, Munger. He's, he's even pretty, worse. You know, he's <laughs> he's getting pretty old. But I just, I it, it really seems strange to me that you have these really high powered macro investors talking up the game over there when people that maybe don't have billions of dollars coming as investment capital into your fund from such nations like China. It just, it's very strange to me and I think extremely suspect. And I think it's something that people should pay close attention to when, when they're hearing these, these narratives that are being shared by these people. Yeah. When you, when you manage a fund as, as large as Bridgewater, you're getting capital from all over the world mm-hmm. and you, 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 you will begin to stop talking negatively or even hinting at issues from some of the areas where you're getting capital from it's just the way it works yeah it's his, I've, it's I've his incentive past too it's like you know once you start getting pension money you know the the pension system's the best thing in the world right yeah so just to be controversial and a little bit immoral based on the great arguments that i agree with all of you guys by the way in your points on china if i had to invest in either the u.s stock market or the chinese stock market for the next three to six months i would absolutely invest in china right now <laughs> okay go ahead i want to hear this it's, it's january 4th right now so china just from a momentum standpoint for the first time since may of 2021 they just popped above their 200 day moving average they have a lot of solid momentum and heading into the second quarter it looks like they're actually going to have some positive gdp growth and it looks like for me at least from what i'm looking at i think the u.s is going to be like in the heart of you know a recessionary bear market at that point i think we're going to have negative gdp growth by the second quarter. So stocks looking ahead, you know, this is just for what it's worth, but it looks strong to me right now. And it looks strong for the first, it's just interesting. We're talking about it because for today, for the first time I've, I've got, I've gotten interested in China for probably, it's been a year and a half since I've been serious about it. So take it for what it's worth. I still think for the long term, I agree. If you want to invest in what you believe in, you should absolutely not be investing there. But if you're just a crass, you know, capitalist and you want to make some money in the next six months, that's where I'd put my money. I'm really interested in that. So you think that as the U.S. enters a recession, which sounds like at least the consensus folks here, that's what it, the consensus is. You think that the Chinese equities will rally on the U.S. entering a recession? Yes, because I think they're on a slightly di- different business cycle than we are, and they're a little bit ahead of us. And I think they're going to start doing some easing well before we do here and, and well before Europe does as well. So I just think they're going to be pumping their markets higher. And I think, I think the Chinese stocks are already sniffing that out personally. So anyways, just, just my two cents. So Jeff, I've got a chart that I just pulled that shows all major equity indices around the world. I'm going to go ahead and share this with the group. Okay. So as you're looking at this chart, I'll just go through the colors as people are looking at them. And these are all converted into US dollars. The top one there, you have India is the, is the purple. The US broader market index, I think it's the Russell 2000 there, the IWV. No, I'm sorry, Russell 3000. That's the second best performing. This, the snapshot comes from the start of 2014 until today. You can see the credit cycles in the, in the markets, the global equity markets on this chart. As we go down, we have the dark green. This is Japan. This right here is China, GXC. The next one's Canada, Europe, 
Hong Kong, and then Korea on the bottom as far as the performance goes. When I'm looking at these, I'm just seeing China as being a pretty volatile version of whatever the credit cycle is. Historically, like look at the bottom here in the markets of January 16. I just don't, I'm, I'm particularly looking at the China one, the GXC, which is, I guess, orangish. orangish. It doesn't seem to really front run or here, let me slide this over so we can get a snapshot of the actual performance. You can started see- at, I think it all, I think COVID is when the business cycles, the current ones started because China got hit first and then it spread to the rest of the world and that affected everything from there. Okay. So here, I'm going to pull that up just to kind of give people a snapshot of, of that. So here's the bottom of COVID and this is their performance. And what I'm particularly cl- paying attention to is, is the bull portion of it. Assuming your narrative there of them running f- hotter or faster than the rest of the markets. In this scenario, or at least in this last one, it looks like Korea actually ripped the hardest. So notice how the Asian markets kind of peaked first and then started their descent. And yeah, then Japan, yep. China yep. was next. And then US and Europe was delayed behind them. So they're like a, a, a three to six month lag behind, excuse me, like we are relative to China and, and to Asian economies. And but, so that's why I think go, they snap out of this from a business cycle perspective sooner than we do. But if you go to that longer duration that we talked about earlier, and, I, and I'm not saying I know what's right or wrong. I'm just trying to push back a little bit on the idea. You know, if this would push out till 25 before we find a bottom, like trying to time an Asian recovery might be per, a little preemptive because I think you're going to, you're going to have some type of capitulation that's going to end the cycle. Would you guys agree with that? That's going to define, unless it's gonna just a slow it. grind lower. Like we were talking about earlier, this is where I'm struggling because I look at business cycles and things. And from what I see is that like in the US here, to me, it looks like the business cycle bottoms in the second quarter of 2023. And then we start growing a little bit more strongly from there. And if if risk assets can sniff that out, they could start growing. China looks like it's going to bottom like right around now and then start to accelerate into the second quarter. But that's that's the smaller business cycle picture. And then we have this larger secular picture of this. Do we have this recession that lasts a process for two to three years or even four or five years or so? And it's ongoing. And maybe we just get this sort of sideways choppiness that to me, that actually seems probably the most reasonable. And, and things like commodities and hard assets and things actually outperform equities and the bond market as well. And we just deal with kind of volatile inflation throughout the 2020s. That seems most likely to me, but... Are you trying so to work I, at Bridgewater? No. What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really hard to, to, to understand how it plays out because I can understand your point. That's why we do these, right? These macro podcasts, because I think it's, it's really challenging to look at the data in front of you and even forecast, you know, six months, let alone several years. And, you know, to the point we had earlier about, you know, where do equities perform? You, you see that chart, Preston, you put up. Look at, you know, look at some major Asian indices. Look at the Nikkei, right? You still haven't taken out the prior, you know, early, what is it? The early 90s hike, all-time high. We never even got back with, uh, talk about the country that's done the most liquidity injections of all, we unlimited. Uh, you, you still haven't taken out the 1990 uh, all-time high on the, the Nikkei, despite unlimited money printer go burr. So, you know, you, that's why I think it's fascinating. And again, this is, uh, this is not my base case at all, but I, I threw over that chart about growth versus value breaking out of a long-term trend. I think it's fascinating to think, you know, maybe we're all wrong in this. Maybe we do see a changing of the guard with respect to leaders. 
there is a history, and if you go back decades in the market, that the, the, the leaders that emerge from a hard bear market are not the ones that led you as bulls in the prior bull market, right? So if the story of the 2010s to 20, you know, 22 was the high growth, the speculative companies, the QQQs, the NASDAQ, the overconcentration of US equities, maybe the story is some of the smaller markets, things like India, right? Could be entering into a decade bull market. I, I, I love Indian equities. I, I have exposure, full disclosure, but you know, those are the things I think about. Do you really see a dec- decade that looks very different than the past one. And you have to at least keep that on your radar and not assume we're going to go back to what we've experienced for the last 10 years. Completely agree. I will. I, th- I think it's going to be akin to the post.com bubble after that crash. You know, the dot-com, obviously tech stocks led up into that. They didn't recover for 10, 15, sometimes 20 years. Cisco still hasn't recovered, I think, from its all-time high back in 2000. And I think- Intel, it, and, you know. Intel, yeah. Think- and, then it's, and then it was a decade of value, right? Up until the, the global financial crisis. And I think that we're going to have a similar, and I think we're already seeing that right now. I think it, and it was to your point to a chart you showed, value is already starting to outperform for the first time in like 12, 13 years. I think that continues for this decade for sure. And it, it's not going to be the decade of Kathy Wood. In fact, I don't know if she makes it out of this decade. I don't know if ARC <laughs> survives. Honestly, I don't know if they do. So anyway, you're calling for her death. She's going to die in this decade. She's not going to die. I'm saying Ark might die. I think hopefully she lives. I, I don't wish any ill on her. But those types of stocks, I don't think will do well this entire decade. Yeah, it's it's possible, right? Because the, that chart of the, of the S&P is great because you look at it and everybody remembers, right? The post 2008 collapse and then just the vertical line, right? But look before that. Look at those two mountains that you see where you know we peak around the same exact range every time and then sell off hard. It, it could take, you know, and again, this is not my base case. I'm not calling for this, but it could take a long time for these markets to recover. And I highly recommend everybody listen to or read Lynn Alden's article, The Capital Sponge. She wrote it, I think, last year. It, it was very good. It talks about the concentration of foreign investment into U.S. equities and how you've reached sort of critical mass with a lot of those in terms of relative share of the marketplace. I was Preston, we were talking about like, you know, the, the, the global ETF VT, and I've been doing a lot of research under the hood on that. You know, what does VT look like in terms of global share of equities with respect to the U.S. composition five years from now? That's fascinating. I don't know. Is it still stay around 60% of equity mm. exposure globally by market mm. cap as in the United States? I don't know. Yeah, I kind of tend to agree with Lynn's thesis there, and uh, I, I don't think it will be. Guys, we could talk on, I, we could do this all night. I, I, I'm like a pig in mud having these conversations. <laughs> I want to respect your time. Guys, go around the horn. Joe, kick it off. Uh, give people a handoff to your Twitter feed or anything else you want to share. Go ahead. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about Bitcoin. How, we did, how did all we right, talk so about let's, Bitcoin? Before we wrap Come on. <laughs> we did. We started off with the Samsung. Okay. What do you think is going to happen with Bitcoin in the, in the coming two quarters? Is it a grind? Is it a sideways grind? What, what, are we, what are we thinking? I think that that's the general consensus, but go ahead. Yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> it's tied up with the equity market. So tell me what the equity market's going to do. If you get a if you get a counter trend rally, if you get a bear market rally from here, which is possible, okay, you can't, you can't say no that you, we've seen it a couple of times and, and bear markets tend to have really vicious rallies. If you get that, I, th- I don't think it's crazy that Bitcoin you know, bounces up and does well. I think it's going to be hard in this environment for Bitcoin to get a sustained rally forward. And I think that's the general consensus. But to me, the big story that I, I'm really interested in is GBTC 
what's going on with Jimmy oh, okay. DC. Yeah, let's cover we, that. We haven't talked you about that. You guys good? That. That's you fast. guys good on the timeline here? Preston's trying to wrap up and we're going to No, no, no. I'm not. I'm sorry, Preston. I am not trying to wrap up. I want to just make sure I'm not like, you know, we, we, can make we, we want Stephen to come Steven back. Here. We want Stephen yeah. to come back. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's well, hear, I, let's hear I, I read about, you know, I, I just public information. I don't know if you can talk about it, Stephen, but this Valkyrie effort, I'm aware of some other entities that are trying to become the the sponsor, replace the sponsor for Grayscale on GBTC. I know a lot of people are upset that hold it and and upset about the the thoughts. I'd love to hear Steven's take on it if he has anything he can say. Well, look, I mean, it's plain, plain and simple. We, we have a hedge fund that looks for opportunities in the market. One of the opportunities we found was GBTC at a, at a, at a massive discount. And we decided that we would take an activist position in it. And that's, that's, that's really how all this started. And then sure enough, one thing after another, the FTX failure, we realized that the Genesis was really at the crux of a lot that had happened. We already talked about all this part, but the most interesting thing that I, and I don't know if this is true, but this is what's circulating around out there. And there's certainly evidence pointing to it that Genesis was, was creating loans to people like three arrows or Celsius or Alameda trading that they were essentially creating loans out of nowhere for them to buy GPTC. Say, Hey, we'll give you a loan, but you got to buy GPTC with it. And then they were immediately taking that as collateral. And we just kind of, the, the light went on we're like, wait a minute, that, that violates rule 144. Because if you're buying it on the, on the primary market, you're not allowed to assign it or sell it to anyone for, in the case of GBDC, six months. So we're creating leverage and liquidity out of nowhere, just you know, kind of like kind of like what our government does anyway in the fiat system. And then, but then, but but for a specific person that you're supposed to be, our specific purpose that's supposed to be arm's length to create shares of of this thing over here so that they can make money off of it, and then refusing to even file for a Reg M exemption. Yes. But people can actually get their Bitcoin out at par. And we're like, this is, this is awful. We, something has to be done. So we, so we took that activist position. Look, I, I can't really say anything beyond that, but there's a lot of people out there, not just us. There's a lot of activists out there that are, that are really upset and, and going after this thing and going back to the price of Bitcoin, you know, usually, usually there's, there's three legs down on the chart. You know, I'm not a chartist. But, but this is also a behavioral thing. The first leg down, we had a massive leg down when Celsius and BlockFi and Voyager all blew up. So we actually got ahead of the equity markets. So I actually don't agree necessarily that if equity markets go down, Bitcoin goes down too, because we're, we're, we're already ahead of those markets. We, we got there at last spring. And then the second leg down was FTX. That decimated the market. We still have one more leg down. We still have one final shoe to drop. And I truly believe that that is the leverage provider, the group that was at the middle of it all. And I truly believe that, that, that Genesis, Grayscale, DCG, all the entities that are related to them, you know, the so-called journalists at Coindesk, they're all the problem at the center of everything else that happened. And it's bigger than FTX. And that's... That's that's what I believe. I, I don't know Ooh. if I'm right. Well, hang on, hang on. All that falls apart. 
Bitcoin will not go up. And, and, and so we need to, we need to cleanse the system so that we can get back on the right path. Number one. But also I do agree with you that until equity markets start going back up again, we probably won't see Bitcoin going up. So there's, there's two things. There's the macro factors, but then there's also just the systematic issues that, that really rest on DCG and, and, and everybody related to them. So I want to make sure I didn't mishear you, Stephen. Did you, so are you saying you believe that that group that you just outlined does blow up, that there is a liquidity event with them, a liquidation event? Absolutely. Wow. That's, Absolutely. that's I don't I don't see any other way. Mm. I mean, and, I, I think I think Gemini is serious, you know, and they're not the only ones. I mean, that's one group that's posted nine hundred million dollars of collateral with Genesis. They can't pay back. How many other groups are out there that are post that that are still existing today that are posting collateral with Genesis? And and, and when I say posting collateral, they're you know they they, they have you know it, it's either collateral for a short position or a long position or some kind of margin trade or or other types of lending vehicles. They posted the collateral. They they're owed money and they can't get their money because they they're owed money from three arrows from FTX, from Celsius, from BlockFi, and they're not getting it back. And we don't know how many other entities are out there. And they've created leverage out of nowhere to buy, you know, to, to, to create shares of GBTC. And that trade is absolutely distinguished. Do you we see Silvergate it. caught up in all of this as well? I don't know. I think Silvergate's actually fine. The problem, here's the problem with Silvergate. Their deposit base has gone down about 70%. And anytime a bank has operations that they built around a deposit base, mm. and then it shrinks that much, yeah. they're, they're, they're operationally in a lot of trouble. Hmm. But I don't, I don't think they're illiquid. I don't think that they're, you know, I don't think they're going bankrupt. I don't think depositor, I don't think there's any depositor risk. Hmm. But I'm not holding my funds at Silvergate. <laughs> nor, nor am I holding client funds at Silvergate. Wow. And here I was going to wrap up the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for making sure I did not wrap up the show, Joe. Go around the horn. Let's, let's close this out. Okay, I'll start. I, I, I get sidetracked. Joe Carlos, sorry again, uh, with Amundsen Davis Law Firm out of Chicago. You can find me at Joe Carlos, sorry, on Twitter. Easiest way to reach out. DMs are open. If you Google my name as well, you can readily access my, my professional webpage and my firm's page and shoot me an email if you have any litigated dispute whatsoever, commercial litigated by day, specializing in uh, digital asset disputes. So if there are scammers or people breaking contracts or people breaching their fiduciary duty or committing fraud, I'm your guy. Love to help you. Steven? Hi, Steven McClurg from Valkyrie. Twitter is at Steven McClurg. It's really hard to remember. and you can probably just Google me and find all kinds of things you don't want to find. <laughs> Jeff. Like my on markets. <laughs> Jeff. Yeah, Jeff Ross. My Twitter handle is at Valeshire Cap. I spend way too much time on Twitter. I run a hedge fund and a RIA business called Valeshire. You can look that up. And it's super fun being on the show again. Preston, thanks for having us on. Oh, what a pleasure. This was just such a fun chat. Can't thank you guys enough for for hanging in there for such a long conversation. But like I said earlier, I'm a pig in mud and I could, I could do this all night. I absolutely love these, these 
quarterly mastermind discussions. So guys, thank you for making time and coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Preston. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.